Oh, sorry, were you, were you waiting for me to start? <laughs> I'm just caught up in the delicious bottle of wine, which I'm enjoying. This is a very special glass of wine. In fact, it's, it's a very rare bottle of wine, which I spent most of yesterday walking around London trying to find. It's sweet to smell. The color is a deep ruby red. And the reason that this is such a special bottle of wine is this is the cheapest bottle of wine in the whole of London for a corked red. Oh, yes, £3.69 from Lidl. On special offer right now. You see, the thing I love about wine is, apart from the taste and the smell, is every bottle has a story. Now, this, this bottle, I love the way that um, wine companies describe their bottles of wine. I'll just read you this one. Nestling in the foothills of the Montage Noir in the south of France, the Minervoire Vineyard produce rich and aromatic wines with a character of their own. This is a blend of Syrah and black Grenache grapes. It's a deep red color with notes of blackcurrant, raspberry and licorice. It's an ideal complement to grilled meat or continental cuisine. And maybe you can have it as a cassoulet or a paella. It can be enjoyed with mature cheese or slightly chilled in the summer. I think I'll have a little bit more. <laughs> now, this particular bottle of wine, when I drink it, I remember the moment I was standing in Lidl on aisle six, <laughs> selecting my bottle of wine because the taste brings back the memories of where, of where you first had that wine. And I'm sure in the years to come, when I, when I uh, find this wine again and taste it, I'll remember this moment right now. Because that's, that's one of the things about wine, is the flavors and the taste and the smell. Because it's beyond just something you see, but becomes something you taste. You connect with the experience of where you first had it. This isn't the only bottle of wine I have with me today. I have a couple of other special bottles of wine. Um, this one here comes in a nice, uh, tasteful bag. If I open it up, it has its own box. There we are. Now, this, this bottle of wine is from the Klein Constantia Vineyard in South Africa. It's the oldest vineyard in South Africa, and it's famous as the wine that Napoleon used to drink. It had a particular taste for the sweet dessert wine. Now, this bottle of wine is actually the most expensive bottle of wine that I own. For this small bottle here, you'd pay about £75. Now, I know you can pay a lot more for wine. This is ex as extravagant as I get. Now, this was actually a gift from my father. Um, in the new year, I'll be starting a business. And he gave me this bottle of wine. He said, this is to drink when you get your first company profits. Now, I may never get to drink this wine. <laughs> I hope I will. So the clause came. It can also be when you um, declare bankruptcy. So one day... So that's the most expensive bottle of wine. I have one more bottle of wine with me. This is the most valuable bottle of wine that I own. This is valuable because this is the wine that we drank on our wedding day. And at the end of the ceremony, at the end of the festivities, we were given several bottles of this. And this is the last remaining bottle. 
And we plan to drink this on our 10-year anniversary. And when we taste and smell and experience this wine, all the thoughts of that ceremony, all the thoughts of the vows that we gave to one another will come rushing back. And just for a few fleeting moments, it will be like we are there on that day. So we're really looking forward to drinking this wine in a few years to come. You see, every bottle has its own story. Every bottle doesn't just appear on a supermarket shelf. Someone has taken the time to grow those vines, to crush them, to turn them into the wonderful drink that we have. And behind every bottle, there is this amazing story. And I want to tell you today about the story behind a very special bottle of wine, even more special than the £3.69 little bottle and the Constantia and my wedding um, bottle of wine. So Kezia's going to come up and just read some verses to us and tell us the story. Um, okay. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have, no, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thank you, Kezia. So, here's the deal. There's a wedding. They've been preparing for months. This is the highlight of the year for everyone who lives in the village. They're much bigger events back in those days than they are today. Typically, they'd last maybe two, three, four, even five days long. They would invest maybe up to two or three years' salary in just those few days. It would be the family's representation of who they are and what they had to offer to the whole village. Jesus gets, dis- uh, gets invited along to a wedding, to this wedding. People, it's going great. They're sitting at tables, they're feasting, they're enjoying great wine, great company. And then one of the servant girls goes to get some more wine. She goes into the house, maybe down to the wine cellar, looks around and can't seem to see any. She says, no way, there must be somewhere, some, somewhere. So she goes over and picks up the dust blankets that are in the corner of the v, uh, cellar and looks underneath and th- there's no more wine. And she goes out to the back. Maybe, maybe they've moved it out the back. But looks out there and there's, there's no more wine there either. And then suddenly the penny drops. There's no more wine. This is massive for this family to, to not be able to put on the festivities that they've invested so much time in planning, so much financial investment, and for the wine to run out. Be shame. Complete humiliation in the village. So there's the question, who's going to tell the bridegroom? Who's going to go upstairs and, and share this, this, this news that the wine, there's no more wine? 
What's going on? And it's at this point that Mary, the mother of Jesus, notices there's, there's some whispering going on. Maybe she clocks the fact that the servants are coming out and just looking at what's on the table, how much wine there's left. And she goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, there's, there's no more wine. And Jesus responds. He responds with a, a strange comment to begin with, which we'll come back to. But Jesus tells him to, to go and get six ceremonial stone jars, which are huge things. They're like 50-gallon, 30-gallon uh, drums. And he tells them to fill them with water. And then when they pour it out, it turns into this most delicious, amazing wine. And the wine, the wine is presented to um, the master of the banquet. And as he tastes it and he smells it, it's like, whoa, this, this is the most incredible vintage wine. Where, where did you get this wine from? Why did, why did you leave it to the end? You should have brought this out at the beginning. This is the good stuff. Put the little £3.69 stuff, you know, get that out of the way. This this is like a vintage Bordeaux that's, that's been 20, 30 years in a bottle. The very best. So we pick the story up. and we, At first, at face value, we, it kind of doesn't make sense. You see, this story that we've read, Jesus chose as his opening calling card. He chose it as, as the, um, the way that he would announce the start of his public ministry and it kind of doesn't make sense because you think well if, if i was jesus and i was going to choose something to announce the arrival of of the greatest movement that the world had ever seen maybe maybe i walked on water or fed the five thousand or raised someone from the dead that would really get things off to a good start but no he decides to in private because the, the miracle doesn't get shared to the people who enjoy the wine. Only the servants know. To produce wine for a party. It's bizarre. It's the solving of just a mere um, just social embarrassment for the family. Although it was a big deal. There's other things that Jesus went on to do which were far more serious. And far more uh, carried value. So what's going on here? What, what, why did Jesus choose this as his first miracle? Well, I believe that as you look closer at this story, it is just like a fine wine. You see, you see things to begin with, but then as you smell it, it's an excuse to, to take another swig. As you, as you look deeper into the color and the complexities, subtle notes come out. And it's no accident that Jesus chose this as his calling card to announce to the world what he wanted to do. So, I believe that as we look at this story, we will see all that Jesus invites us to, all that he came to do, and all that he has to offer. See, John describes this as a sign. A sign pointing to something which is incredible and amazing and wonderful. And he closes the story with saying, and through this, Jesus revealed his glory. So let's look a little bit closer at this story. So first, I believe that through this story, Jesus invites us to a life that's full of adventure. I know for me, when I was growing up, I was brought up in a, in a Baptist church. And um, my particular church was quite heavy on law. 
As in, there was a list of rules that you needed to obey in order to be a good Christian. Now, that was never publicly said from the front, but there was a subtle undertone to everything. Grace wasn't really in there. There was a list of things that you were expected to do as a Christian. You weren't meant to drink. You weren't meant to go to parties. And there's a whole list of things that if you were a good Christian, you needed to do. Well, that all changed for me when I was about 16 years old. And the, the, the question that was really over my life at that point was, I believed in God and I believed in Jesus. But Jesus didn't really seem like a fun guy to me and didn't really seem like he was offering anything that I couldn't get elsewhere. And I remember uh, walking on my paper round up the Sutton Road, which is in Walsall, north of Birmingham, and outside number 156. I just prayed a simple prayer. And it was, God, if you're real, I want you to reveal yourself in my life as a deeper experience than just, just a head thing. It can't be just a head thing. It can't just be a, I know God exists. I have to feel it. I have to experience it. And looking back, that was the moment for me that my Christian life completely changed. And over the next few months and over the next few years, Jesus started to reveal more of who he was into my life. And it dropped from the head to the heart. And no longer did I just read the stories of Jesus. I knew the stories of Jesus because they were seeing them in my life. I didn't just understand the doctrine of who Jesus came to be. I was witnessing it firsthand. And it was changing my life before my eyes. So this life of adventure that Jesus calls us to, that he uses this story of turning water into wine as an example, is something I want to just look at right now. So this adventure, two qualities of what this adventure is like. The first one is it's an adventure that's characterized by being joy-filled. Let's, let's be right to the point here. This is provocative in what Jesus did. He turns up at a party and he turns not just a couple of bottles into wine. You know, he doesn't just like put a little bit there. You know, this will get us through the next few hours. 150 gallons. That's a thousand bottles of wine. In other words, if you had one glass a day, it would last you over 10 years. And it was the good stuff. It was heady wine. It was intoxicating. This is, this is bizarre. Why would Jesus do this? Well, I believe that Jesus is making an incredible statement at this point. He's saying, I come to be the party giver. I come to give you life that's joy-filled, that will deeply satisfy everything about who you are and what I have to bring. And he's coming in. There's a, there's a, there's a character in the story which is referred to as the master of the banquet. And we read it and we go, who is this guy? He's not the groom. What, what's his job? Well, if you were planning a party and you wanted it to go really well, you'd hire in someone who's an expert in hosting. They'd, be, they'd have a joke for every eventuality. They'd be the person who'd lead into every moment of what's happening. They'd be the, the, the life and soul of the party. Well, this guy hadn't done his job well. He was in charge of making sure the wine kept on flowing because the wine was the lifeblood of the party. Jesus steps up and he says, by doing this, he says, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the one who gives life and vibrance and energy and he's just a great guy. And that is so different 
to the view that, that the world sometimes has of Jesus. It was the view that I had until I was 16, which was Jesus comes with a whole list of rules. He's the party killer. He's the joy killer. Yet, by launching his public ministry, his calling card, the very first thing he did, he's saying, primarily, I come to bring life. I bring joy. I bring wine. And that is so incredible. So this joy-filled life. Let me share a verse with you. It's the most delicious verse in the whole Bible. Isaiah 25, 6 and 7. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So the kingdom of God is like a sirloin steak served with a merlot. That, isn't that incredible? The, the, the richness, the, the sensual language that the Bible uses to describe what the kingdom of God is like. I know that that's an adventure that I want to be part of. And that's a Jesus that I can share with people, not the Jesus that brings the list of rules. So, life, uh, Jesus invites us to a life full of adventure. This adventure is to be joy-filled. It's also an adventure that's to be deeply satisfying. So, Matthew um, 8, verse 11, there's no slide going up, um, describes the kingdom as a feast. It says, I say to you that may, many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this feast, this feast that we're called to, this feast that we're going to enjoy is one that satisfies. The life that Jesus offers is not just one of excitement and adventure. It's also one that is deeply satisfying. It fills us. It is the complete... Um, uh, meaning of, of, of why you're here, of why, of why we're here on earth, why, why God made us. A relationship with God is that deep, deep, satisfying um, experience. Psalm 34, 8, if you can put that verse up, says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just like this glass of wine, I can tell you, I have told you how, how good it tastes for £3.69. I can tell you about its color, its, its complexities, its, its deep flavor. But you don't actually know until you taste it. What God is offering us here is not just to, to understand what he's like, not just to understand what his kingdom is like. He's saying, come, come and taste, come and experience what I have for you. And unlike wine of this, of this variety, you can drink as much of it as you want and you won't have a headache the next day. In fact, just like wine, it, it becomes addictive. It becomes deeply satisfying and you have to have more because when you taste Jesus, when you taste what he has to offer, you can't help but want more and more and more. It's the reason you get up in the morning. It's, it's a wine that gets you out of bed. It is a bit weird to be drinking wine on a Sunday morning. You wouldn't normally do that. You drink it maybe before you go to bed in an evening. But the wine that Jesus offers gets you out of bed in the morning. It, it excites us to, to live life um, with him. Um, so, moving on. Jesus also shows us compassion. This story revolves around the fact that Jesus is involved in his community. So, it's not that... Um, 
I mean, but let's put this in context. Jesus is about to launch the, um, the major world movements that history has ever seen. Now, he's, he's on the verge of his whole life has been leading up to this moment. He's about to launch his public ministry. If I was him, I'd be off, I don't know, doing some team building with my team, making sure they're all ready, you know, getting, getting them all fired up because they're going to have to carry this on after Jesus is gone. Or, or maybe I'd be planning a big rally outside publicly where as many people as possible would come and see who Jesus is. But no, Jesus is taking time out to be at a wedding, to be in his community, to mix with people who um, he's lived his life with. Clearly, Jesus loves the people he's surrounded by. It's not that he just wants to do ministry, you know, have some prayer meetings, do some sermons. He wants to be around the table, sharing life, sharing a few jokes, being involved in people's life. So Jesus was involved with his community. So I question to you, or the question that Jesus was asking at this point was not, how's my team doing? How am I doing? He's saying, how's my community doing? And that was the yardstick that he was defining um, his mission and what he was to do. And that led him to stepping in and solving this problem for this community. So how are you doing in loving your community? Are you like Jesus, thinking, how's my road doing? How's my town doing? How's, how's my school doing? Or do you look forward to Wednesdays in community group where you can come together with Christians and it's all right for an evening? And come here on a Sunday and hang out with Christians, it's all right for an evening because it gets me through the week. It gets me through the stuff I've got to do to pay the bills, to put food on the table. Or are you as excited about hanging out with people who don't know him yet, loving your community, and getting stuck in and getting involved. I've got news for you. Your job is probably, for most of us, the main way that you're going to live out God's adventure in your life. Don't miss that. Don't think that it's not as important as what we do on a Sunday or do midweek. It's more important. Jesus knew this, and he loved his community and got in there and... And, and, and was just loving being with them. Jesus was also a blessing. Now, blessing is, is a strange word. And I was trying to come up with something that, that shows that, that Jesus was proactive in his compassion. And it wasn't that he just felt compassion for the wedding, that he actually was active and stepped into it and did something about it. So just very quickly, just to highlight one thing, Jesus didn't, once he turned the water into wine, walk into the room and go, Behold, I have turned the water into wine. Let me give you a succinct three-point sermon on how I am the Son of God. He was completely content to just bless the wedding. And he let that be and just sit there. He didn't have to turn it into a sermon. He didn't have to turn it into trying to tell people about who he was. He let the fact that it was just a blessing to the community, to that young couple who'd, to be honest, had messed up and, and, and hadn't planned the day correctly or the few days correctly. He was just content in blessing that community. So my encouragement to you is don't always look for every opportunity to work the gospel into every conversation. We can bless people. We can love people. And let that be the message. 
There's a time for sharing the gospel. I'm not dismissing that. But you are sharing the gospel through being just salt and light and love and being a blessing in the communities. Um, thirdly, Jesus came to offer us purity. This is, this is one of these subtle notes which are hidden within, within the complexities of this story. As you sniff a little bit closer, you, you just kind of see what's really going on here. The key is understanding verse 4. So Mary comes to Jesus. says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus responds, woman, it's not my time. That's a little harsh. That's a little harsh. I I wouldn't speak to my mom that way. And there's obviously more going on here than Jesus not wanting to do a miracle. When you first read this story, it's it's as if um, Mary somehow coerces Jesus into performing this miracle. It's it's his mom. She comes, you know, come on, Jesus. You really want to do a little little miracle now. This This is the right moment. And then Jesus gives in. But no, that, that's not what's going on. Remember, Jesus is the greatest world leader who's ever lived. This moment is planned. What's going on? Well, the words he used gives us an indication of what's going on in his mind. I believe, first of all, the context of the fact that Jesus is at a wedding is significant. You see, when we go to a wedding and we're sat there and um, maybe during the ceremony... Those of us that are married often think about our vows, think about our wedding day. Maybe we reach over and squeeze our partner's hand, as we just remember. Those of us who are single, like Jesus, think about, I wonder what my wedding day will be like. I wonder who he'll be with. I wonder where it will be. You see, often when we're at a wedding, in our minds we can be another place. Because weddings are something that we all go through, or that we've all been to at one point in our lives. So when Jesus at this wedding, I believe that he's thinking about his wedding to come. Matthew 9, verses 14 to 15, describes this wedding. Then, sorry, that's not the right words. So Jesus um, describes himself as the bridegroom. That's, um, that's how Jesus, or one of the ways that God wants to communicate who he is to us. So we had this amazing word about Jesus as king, how he invites us into his presence. That's another way. Often Jesus describes himself as a shepherd and with his flock, and we relate to him that. Sometimes God refers to himself as father and we're sons and daughters. But I believe the most intimate way that God describes who he is is as a bridegroom, as um, he sees us as the bride, and he is the bridegroom. We are his beloved. There's a beautiful, intimate um, message there. So when, when John's disciples come and ask Jesus, um, how is it that when the Pharisees, off, uh, sorry, but how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Just like we did this week. We remember all that Jesus was. We remember all that 
he came to do through fasting. And that's one of the ways. But Jesus very clearly here describes himself as that bridegroom. In Revelation 24, 2-4, the description of, um, of the bride coming down um, from the holy city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them, and he will be their people. And God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. For the old border has passed away. Jesus is saying there is a wedding feast to come that will be the most amazing wedding feast that the world has ever seen. He's at this wedding and he's thinking about this wedding feast to come. That's clearly on his mind, but that's not the only thing he's thinking about. You see, he knows what it's going to cost him to provide the wine for his wedding day. And I believe that's part of the, the harsh reaction that we, we see here. See, Mary comes to him and says, there's no more wine. And he turns around and effectively says, it's not my time to die yet. You see, the word he uses for hour has a technical meeting, uh, meaning in the book of John. The word hour means the hour of his death. So his response to uh, Mary's request is it's not the hour of my death yet. He's not saying that I've got to die to produce the wine for this wedding. His mind goes to the cost of what it will cost to produce the wine for the wedding to come. So Jesus is clearly thinking about his death. And he couldn't be more clear that when he uses the stone water jars to produce the wine. You see, the, the stone water jars were used for ceremonial washing. Now, I know, I know this isn't a 50-gallon um, stone water jar, but I just want to use this as a, just clearly at the moment, just to illustrate this point. See, when, you, when the Jews went to the temple, before they went into the presence of God, they needed to be clean. They needed to wash themselves. Now, it wasn't God saying you needed to have good personal hygiene in order to connect with me. Just like this story, it was a sign of to come. God is saying that in order to be in my presence, you have to be cleansed. You have to be washed. You have to be pure. And by Jesus using the ceremonial washing um, water jars, he's saying that in order for the wine to, to flow, in order to be in God's presence, in order to be at the, priest, at the feast, you need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. You need to have my wine. That's the gateway in. So in a moment, I want us to um, take communion together. I want us to remember what it cost Jesus to produce the wine for our wedding. When It's no coincidence that the night before um, Jesus' hour, when Jesus died, he used, water and, uh, he used wine and bread to represent his body and his blood. Wine throughout Scripture represents Jesus' blood. In fact, I think it's, it's amazing that the contrast between um, 
the story of Moses in the Old Testament where Egypt, he turned the water to blood as a curse. In the New Testament, Jesus turns the water into blood as a blessing. That's what the, that's what the children's work are learning at the moment. The story of Egypt, the story of Moses. That's a sign of what's to come. That's a sign of what was held in, in this bottle. The very special bottle of Jesus' blood given for us. So I started by explaining how every bottle of wine has a story. And how we're invited to come and taste it. Not just to know that it's in here. But to actually come and experience and satisfy um, life through tasting Jesus' wine. So as we break bread together, I want us to think about three things. The life that Jesus invites us to, which is full of adventure. Jesus coming to show compassion. And the offer of purity that Jesus offers us. Perhaps Sam could come and um, play some music. non-alcoholic wine in case you're wondering so take the wine And think about all the life that Jesus is calling you to. What it cost him to produce that wine right there. It's just symbolic. It's just an expression of, of what Jesus came to offer. But as we do this, we remember the life he lived, the life that he invites us to, the purity that he offers us. Maybe maybe you're just thinking. This life you describe of adventure, of, 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 of just deeply satisfying life, that isn't something which I know. To be honest, maybe maybe, maybe here, but it hasn't fallen here yet. Then as you take this wine, ask Jesus to do that. Ask him to fill your life and to just make wine flow out of every part of your life. Maybe, maybe you're, you're thinking, who could I show compassion to? How could I love my community? Again, as you take this wine and take this bread, think about that. Maybe for you, it's just getting right with Jesus, getting right with God. The offer's right here. The wine, there's a thousand bottles of it at this wedding. There is no limit. There's no end to it. You can't out um, drink God's wine. So get right with him right now. Just take a minute. I'm going to pass the bread round as well and just have a few moments of contemplation, just thinking about these things.